0: Good evening, and it is a joy to be back with you uh, tonight as we continue our study of the Baptist Faith and Message, and tonight we come to the uh, first uh, sub-article under the doctrine of God, and that being God the Father. Uh, As we noted when we introduced this doctrine uh, two weeks ago, uh, the Baptist Faith and Message 2000 has a statement about God, and then it has a specific uh, section on God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And so tonight we're going to examine the article on God the Father, which interestingly uh, is not all that developed, it's not all that extensive, uh, in fact it's really quite brief in terms of what it says and what it uh, teaches, but yet there are some things here that I think are very valuable, and uh, in a sense tonight I hope we're reminded about the fact that we just kind of assume something about God that is very seldom uh, addressed in the old testament and it is something that is virtually unknown in other world religions and that is that god is father and that we can indeed relate to him as our father uh, in the old testament as we're going to see there are very few references to this most of them are not of a personal nature but more of a national or corporate nation, uh, nature as he is depicted as the father of the nation of Israel. But look with me on page one in your notes tonight, God the Father, article two, and what does the article say in the Baptist Faith and Message 2000? Uh, God the Father reigns with providential care. So he is providential. He is in sovereign authority over all things. In particular, three things are noted in the statement. Number one, he is providential in his care over his universe. After all, he made it. Secondly, his creatures, after all, he created us, and of course, in his good grace, he made human beings in his image. And then thirdly, he is also providential in his care over the flow of the stream of human history, all of this according to the purposes of his grace. In other words, history is going somewhere. Uh, History is not out of control. History is not moving forward willy-nilly, but rather history has a very specific point to which it is headed. And furthermore, it has a God who is guiding it all along the way. And so God is providential over his universe, his creatures, and even the flow of history, all according to the purposes of his grace, his goodness, his kindness, his mercy. Furthermore, he is all-powerful, number one. He is all-knowing, number two. He is all-loving, number three. And he is all-wise, number four. And we'll talk a little bit more about that uh, in just a moment. Then this next, uh, these next two statements are very crucial and need to be kept in close proximity to one another. God is Father, capital F, uh, noun form. God is Father in truth to those who become children of God through faith. In Jesus Christ. And so, so for those of us tonight who know Christ as Savior, we also know God intimately as our Father. But, He is fatherly in His attitude toward all men. In other words, God is a gracious and benevolent and kind God toward all humanity. In fact, the Bible teaches us that God causes the rain to come down on both the what the just and the unjust. Why? Because He is fatherly, fatherly light toward all of His creatures. But He is only Father to those who have been adopted into the family through a faith relationship with his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And so there is a sense in which he relates to all human beings in a fatherly kind of a way, but he only relates as father to those who know him as Savior through the Lord Jesus Christ. All right. Now, I then have given you on page one. ...and the top of page 2, some key text in particular that I think stand out as we talk about or discuss the doctrine of God the Father. And you may want to do what I've done. In my notes, I've written out a word that I'll give you in just a moment by each scripture that kind of gives us the focus or the emphasis of what that particular text is telling us about God and God the Father. So, for example, Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. Uh, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. I just wrote out beside it the word creator. And it is just a reminder again that evolution is not the reason we are here, but the creator God who reveals himself as Father is the reason that we are here. Our God is the sovereign creator. Uh, Exodus 3.14, and God said to Moses... I am who I am. And he said, Thus you shall say to the children of Israel, I am has sent me to you. By that verse, I've written the word eternal, because uh, contained within the idea of his being the great I am is the fact that he has always been. He is today and he always will be. He is the great I am. He's not, I, I, he's not the I was. He's not the I will be. He is the I am. And so there is an affirmation of his eternality in that statement. Exodus 21 through 3, and God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. And this is of course the first of the commandments. You shall have no other gods be for me. And so I've written down two words by Exodus twenty one through three. First I wrote the word deliverer, or if you like, Savior, because he delivered them, he saved them out of Egyptian bondage. And then secondly the word exclusive. Exclusive. In other words, our allegiance is not to be to multiple gods. Our allegiance is to be to only one God. And in fact, the Bible makes it very clear there really is only one true God, the God who is the Father of the Lord Jesus Christ, the God who is the father of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who delivered the Hebrew people out of Egypt. And so he is an exclusive God. He demands absolute, complete, and total allegiance. Deuteronomy 6, four here O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We could interject the two Hebrew words that are used here that are very important. here O Israel, uh, the Lord, Yahweh, our Elohim, Yahweh is one. And so Yahweh, Yahweh, his more personal name, Elohim, the more general word. So Yahweh, our God, Yahweh is one. And out beside this verse, I've written the word monotheism. Monotheism, because here you have a clear affirmation of the monotheistic nature of God. The word mono meaning one, theism meaning God. So there is only one God. And also, those of you that have studied the Old Testament, and in particular the book of Deuteronomy, know that this verse is also called the Shema. Uh, It is sort of the confession of faith in summary fashion of the Hebrew people because the first word here is the Hebrew word Shema, so hence the Shema, and it is the affirmation that there is only one God. And then the next three references are particularly interesting in this regard. Sometimes people will say erroneously, but understand why, that the idea of God as our Father was not revealed until the New Testament. And that's not altogether true. It is the case that Jesus, more than any other, affirms to us that God indeed can be related to as a father. We can pray to him as a father. We can know him in a spiritual relationship as a father. But actually, even from the verses above, there are at least three of them that you can locate in the Old Testament that speak of God using the word Father. Now, to be fair to those who make that observation, of the three, only one is of a personal nature. The other two are clearly speaking of God as the Father, not of an individual, but the Father of the nation. Look at it with me, Deuteronomy 32, 6. Uh, Do you thus deal with the Lord, O foolish and unwise people? Is he not your Father who bought you? Has he not made you and established you? And the context there is the Hebrew people who have been delivered out of Egyptian bondage. 1st uh, Chronicles 29:10 Therefore David blessed uh, David blessed the Lord before all the assembly and David said blessed are you Lord God of Israel our father forever and ever Isaiah three I've written beside it the word Savior, because here the Saviorhood of God the Father is emphasized. For I am the Lord your God, the Holy One of Israel, your Savior. But then the one that I was able to find in all of the Scriptures that looks to God in a more personal way, that anticipates the more full expression found uh, in the teachings of Jesus, Isaiah four eight. But now, O Lord, you are our Father, even though still, let's be fair, uh, the word our is not in the singular, it is in the plural, but still there seems to be a more personal emphasis to this one. But now, oh Lord, you are our father. We are the clay and you are, and you our potter and all we are the work of your hand. So you still have corporate language and yet it seems to be pushing more at this point toward a personal kind of relating to God who reveals himself and says we can relate to him as father. Of course, the full manifestation of that comes in the New Testament and in particular in the Gospels. And If you really want to see uh, father language saturate a book, go to the Gospel of John. And in particular, not only note that we can relate to God as Father, but you just cannot help but see the massive emphasis of God the Father relating to God the Son. And the Father-Son language and the Father-Son dynamic just absolutely dominates and permeates the Gospel of John. And yet, coming back to the model prayer in Matthew six nineteen, nine and 10, In this manner, therefore, pray our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. So Jesus teaches us here. We're not taught anywhere in the Old Testament. Pray to God as father. When Jesus said this, the disciples, the Hebrew people, they would have looked up and they would have taken notice and they would have said, really? Are are you serious? We can relate to the sovereign, providential Creator, awesome God in this kind of a way. And Jesus says, yes, you can pray to him as your father. And then what you'll find uh, in the remaining of the verses is a twofold emphasis. One, the Matthew 28 passage, uh, the Galatians and Ephesians passage on the Trinity. But also, the Romans and Galatians passage, even more intimate father language. So just note again, bottom of the page, Matthew 28, 19. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the ethnies, all the people groups, all the nations, baptizing them in the name singular of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. So you have father language there in the context of Trinitarian language. But then... Note Romans 8 and Galatians 4, Romans eight fourteen and 15. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption by which we cry out, Abba, Father. And the fact is, we really do not have an equivalent in English. We don't. The closest thing, as you've heard probably on a number of occasions, is the closest thing to Abba in English is daddy. Is daddy. And so he is even taking father language and making it more intimate, more tender, more approachable by saying you can relate to God as your daddy. In fact, I hardly ever, in fact, I have no memory of my own life of ever calling my dad father. Maybe you grew up in a very severe, very uh, stilted, very formal home, and so you had to address him as father. But most of us don't call our father's father. We call him dad or daddy. And that's what you've got going on here, Galatians 4, 4 through 7. Also Trinitarian, by the way. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son. There's the son born of a woman, born under the law. To redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons, and because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit, so we've got the Son, now we've got the Spirit, the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying out, what? Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer a slave, a slave to sin, but a son. And if a son, then an heir of God through Christ. And so not only is he your father, he has for you a wonderful inheritance made possible through the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, Ephesians 4, 4 through 6. Uh, There's one body and one spirit, okay, just as you were called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, that would be Jesus, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is above all and through all and in you all. And so you can see by surveying these verses that there is a growing progression from the Old Testament into the New, concerning the fatherhood of God, concerning the fact that we can know him as father, we can relate to him as father, even to the extent that we can crawl up in his lap like we would our own earthly father and call him Daddy. And so there's a beautiful intimacy that develops ultimately in the writings of Paul. Now, some major observations, a brief Uh, Commentary, and then we'll have some summary theological thoughts. Number one, or beginning there at the middle, page two. Uh, At the heart and center of Christian faith and practice is the great and glorious triune God of Scripture. That is the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Unfortunately, though, as David Wells has reminded us in his important work, and here's a great book if you want to do some heavy lifting theologically, No Place for Truth, What a secular and postmodern age often does to God is not to eliminate him, but rather to relocate him, relocate him from the center of our lives to that which is periphery and inconsequential. Just this afternoon before uh, I came over here, I was uh, reading an article uh, online uh, that just came out from Trinity College that says by the year 2030, it is quite possible that one in five Americans will self-identify themselves as a secularist. One in five will identify themselves as a secularist, are as we are expecting in the survey that will come out in 2010 and then later 2020 and then later 2030, they will, if asked for their religious preference, they will join the fastest growing category in America today called what? Nuns. Not N-U-N-S, but N-O-N-E-S. Now, I kept reading the article and discovered that among this growing movement of nuns, The overwhelming majority are not atheists. The overwhelming majority, in other words, atheism is still pretty much where it's always been. Hovering around 5% of the American population. Americans to this day, for the most part, are still overwhelmingly committed to the belief that there is some kind of supreme being. All right? So even as the nuns will increase... The number of atheists, it seems to be the case, will not be growing all that much. So, what are most Americans doing with God? Exactly what David Wells said: they've kicked him out of the center, and they've moved him out to the sideline. Uh, they put him over on the bench. Uh, he's he's there, but he doesn't matter. He's there, but he doesn't get to play. He's there, and I don't pay attention to him. He's over. On the sideline, we kick him to the curb and he becomes on the periphery and therefore God, in essence, as far as everyday living, he's pretty much inconsequential to our lives. And so David Wells is exactly correct. And by the way, if God is on the sideline, kicked to the curb, you're not going to be relating to him as your father. Uh, he may be, you know, the big guy upstairs, or he may be the guy that you expect to zap you if you do something really bad. Although, why? Since he's on the sidelines, he doesn't care what you're doing anyway. So, in essence, we become a bunch of deists, and God's there, but he doesn't care, and we don't care either. So, you move on then. However, this is something that God, of the Bible, will not allow. But when we turn to Scripture from Genesis to Revelation... We are presented with the only one living and true God who is indeed our creator. And by the way, if he made you, then you're obligated to him. Secondly, he is Lord. He has the right to demand anything he wants in any life. And finally, you can even relate to him through faith in Christ as your father. And so I agree with the friend of mine who said it is an awesome privilege to confess and affirm Article 2A of the Baptist Faith and Message, God the Father. For as this statement reminds us, the God of Scripture is a triune God, but He is the God who is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And because of God's gracious work of redemption of Christ or in Christ, we may now become children of God and have the supreme joy of calling God our Father. In other words, we who are ruined by the fall and who rightly stood under God's just condemnation are now, by grace, through faith in Jesus Christ, able to address God legitimately and truthfully as our Father. And so, 1 John 3, 1 wonderfully reminds us, top of page 3, how great is the love, the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. Now, a quick word in our modern context. For some people, the idea of God being father is not all that cool. It's not all that desirable. The fact of the matter is, if you're witnessing to someone who is lost, And you share with them that if you will trust Christ as your Savior, God will become your father, they may say, no, thank you. No, thank you. Uh, I am not interested. You say, why do you think that's the case? Because there are a lot of bad fathers out there today. Uh, We live in a world that is fractured. We live in a world that is bruised and battered and broken because so many men have failed to be good fathers. And you start talking to a, a young lady that was abandoned or sexually abused by a father or watched her father beat and brutalize her mother, his mother, day in and day out, and they begin to conceive of God as father, and they say, I don't, I don't need this. I don't want this. I'm not interested. That's why when you and I do evangelism, And when you and I engage this kind of theological discussion in the world in which we live, we have to help people understand God is a good father. He is a loving father. He is a gracious father. He is a kind father. He is a merciful father. He is an approachable father. Uh, Perhaps the concept of God that is most precious to my wife who grew up in a children's home, abandoned by her alcoholic father, her alcoholic mother. The most precious thought thought to Charlotte all these years was, here is a God, here is a father who will never leave you or forsake you. And that was what was able to turn her heart so that when she began to conceive as a little girl and then as a teenager and even now as an adult, that is what was able to turn her heart into embracing God as father and embracing God as father in a positive way, not in a negative way. And so we just have to understand that for the purposes of sharing the gospel, doing good theology and evangelism in our context, you're going to have to help some people understand, you know, he's not the kind of father that many of of us have experienced. He is a different kind of, he's a perfect father. He's a wonderful father. He is a magnificent father. There is no father like this father, just like there's no savior like the savior whose name is Jesus. Next paragraph then. But it must be quickly added that this privilege of knowing God as our Father is found, should be, is found only through faith in Jesus Christ. Now, in my notes, I've written three words out there beside after the word no, N-O. I've written out beside there no universalism, no pluralism, and no inclusivism. No universalism, no pluralism, And no inclusivism. You say, what do those words mean? No universalism simply means it is not true that ultimately everybody is going to be saved. Not true. People who know Christ, know God as Father, they go to heaven. People who do not know Christ, do not know God as Father, tragically, they will go to hell. No universalism. Everybody is not going to get saved. No pluralism. Pluralism is really the road to universalism, and pluralism simply says all roads lead to God. Uh, every road will get you there. So you can follow the Christian road if you like. Uh, not picking on him, but even the President of our United States has recently said, well, uh, Jesus is Savior for me. Exactly what he said. It's a quote. Jesus is the Savior for me. But you may have a savior that you find in Islam, or you may find a savior that you find in Judaism, or you may find a savior that you find in Hinduism, or Buddhism, or in New Ageism, or in animism, or in mysticism. He's he's the savior for me. You may have a savior that comes through some other means or mechanism, and that's simply pluralism. All the roads will get you to heaven. No. And then inclusivism is kind of this more insidious approach, and it's not something that you readily come across, but you need to be familiar with it. It says this, Jesus is the Savior, and you, can, and you must know Jesus as Savior to have God as your Father, but you might know Jesus without knowing Jesus. You say, what? You might know Jesus without knowing Jesus. Carl uh, Rahner, a Roman Catholic theologian, coined the phrase anonymous Christianity. There are Christians who don't know Christ. And Carl Rahner argued, here's the simple way of saying it, do the best you can with what you've got and that's good enough for God. Do the best you can with what you've got and that's good enough for God. So if you do the best you can and all you have is nature, that's okay. You can worship God through nature and get to Jesus. Jesus will save you. You didn't know Jesus was saving you, but Jesus saved you and God is your father. You may find your way to God through another world religion like all the ones I just mentioned. No, you come to the Bible and it makes it very clear that you must have a conscious faith as long as you reach an age and a state of moral consciousness. Uh, this uh, morning we had a Q&A at the seminary. And uh, one of the questions that I was asked, for a very good question, uh, which led into another question, was, uh, what do you think happens to babies that are aborted? Do you think they go to heaven? And I said, absolutely. Absolutely. No hesitation whatsoever. All those who are aborted go to heaven. I'll go further than that. All infants who die, they go to heaven. I'll go further than that. Anyone that never reaches an age of moral discernment. Where they have the ability to recognize right from wrong, where they have the ability to realize that my sin is an offense against a God who made me and has a right to hold me accountable. If for some reason there is some type of mental defect that prevents them from getting there, I believe the Bible makes it clear that they too are the objects of God's saving grace. But setting that category of persons aside, no one is saved apart from a conscious faith relationship with Jesus Christ. I didn't say it, Jesus said it. John 14:6. We all know the verse. And so there's no universalism, there's no pluralism, there's no inclusivism. That's why we do send folks to Romania. Uh, That is why we send folks at Southeastern next week also to Turkey and to Brazil and to inner city New York. That's why we do send folks across the world to China and around the world, because we believe apart from the hearing and the believing of the gospel, they cannot be saved. In fact, can I just stay here for just a moment reverse it? If you don't believe that, and you actually believe that, as some liberal theologians do, let's take those folks in China that may be in those villages that have never heard the gospel. Some theologians would argue, well, they're safe. They're safe because they're not accountable having not heard the gospel. All right. Then I would submit to you that the best thing we can do is stay home. Keep your tail here and don't go there because if you tell them the gospel and they reject the gospel, then you've damned them and condemn them. So stay home. But, if that is theologically flawed, and the fact is, they are lost, and they have no hope apart from the gospel, then we better get off our backside and get over there and do something. But again, and I went on my bombing raid this morning, a little bit of it is still in me, so I'll use a little bit more tonight. You'll find this interesting, all of my brothers and sisters here that are non-seminarians. Would you like to know how much money Southern Baptists gave last year through our 45,000 churches? How much money Southern Baptists collectively gave through our offering plates last year through our 45,000 churches? Answer, $12 billion. $12 billion. Now, here's the million-dollar question. Would you like to know how much of that $12 million got outside the boundaries of the United States of America? 2.75%. 2.75%, 97.5%, I right there, stays right here in the good old US of A, where we have today 45,000 Southern Baptist churches alone, and I can take you to places in China and in India where you can walk for days and weeks and months and not only not find a church, you won't find a Christian. Yeah, it got real quiet in my seminary this morning too. Because that ought to convince you. And if it doesn't convince you, then there's something wrong with your heart. We keep too much. Not enough of us go. Our priorities are messed up. And the fact is, the only way you can know God as Father is to know Jesus as Savior. And if they don't hear, they can't believe. And if they don't believe, they won't go to heaven. And folks, I found this out just doing a little bit of so study again, and I'll move on. In 1900, half the world's population still had never heard of Jesus. In the year 2009, half the world's population has still never heard of Jesus. Now, I realize there are a lot more people, but percentage-wise, we've made no gains. We've gained no new ground. I mean, a hundred years of all that God has blessed us with, and we've not made any more headway than that. That bothers me. It bothers me. It disturbs me about me. You know, am I, am I one who who has been seduced by the American dream? And am I one that's satisfied and comfortable in my Christianity? Is the problem Danny Aiken? I mean, before I start pointing fingers at other people, I really ought to start pointing the finger at me first. And so once more again, it must be added quickly that this great privilege of knowing God as our Father is only found through faith in Jesus Christ. Thus, the last paragraph. The Baptist Faith and Message correctly notes that God, as providential Lord, is, here we are, fatherly in his attitude toward all men. That is, in God's sovereign care over his creation, uh, through his work of providence, he sustains, and he keeps the world that he has made. He sends both rain and sunshine alike, both upon the believer and the unbeliever. And so it's not like that when the rains come through Raleigh-Durham, only the believers get rains on their fields and house, and the unbelievers, God just jumps right over them and all they live in parched land. No, God blesses them with rain. God blesses them with sunshine. God gives them breath. Any life that an unbeliever has is a result of God's good grace in their lives. So he is, in a sense, fatherly to all. But he is father only to those who know him through faith in Christ and are adopted into his family. So, uh, very quickly, some theological summary observations. I'll just hit these quickly. Uh, Number one, God is Father, and therefore he is a personal God. By the way, he's not mother, nor is he an it. To refer to God as an it is to depersonalize him and therefore to degrade him. And to call him mother is to buy into paganism and to address God in the way that the ancient pagans addressed their gods. No, God revealed himself as father. Say, well, why do you say that? Because the seminary where I teach at up until about 1990 had a boatload of professors who were happy to pray to God as their mother. Our mother who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. That was going on. Praise God, it's not going on anymore. Number two, God is Lord of the universe. All things come under his authority. He made it. And therefore, He rules it. Number three, unlike Buddhism, Hinduism, which are reincarnational and therefore cyclical in their way of thinking, God is Lord of history. That means a number of things. It means first of all, time had a beginning, as did the universe. The universe has not always existed. It had a definite moment where it began. Furthermore, because he is the Lord of history, history has a purpose. It has what we could call a telos, a, 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 a point to which it is building and a conclusion that will be achieved. Then the four omni-statements. Number four, God is omnipotent. That is, God is all-powerful. Now, Again, I will to chase this too long, but if you take theology, uh, you'll sometimes run across books where they will say, "Well, you know, the fathers and the medieval fathers used to raise questions like this: Can God make a rock so big He cannot lift it? Or here's my favorite: Can God make a square circle?" You say, "Well, that sounds like nonsense." It is nonsense. That's what people do who've got too much time on their hands. They need to get, again, their tail outside and go witness to somebody. No, God does not do that which is illogical because he is the most logical of all beings. God does not do that which is irrational. He may do that which is super irrational, which means it doesn't go against reason, but it transcends reason. But God is not an illogical God. God can do anything in terms of his power that can be done. That is consistent with his character. That is consistent with his character. Secondly, God is omniscient. We talked about this two weeks ago, just to remind you, God knows everything. He knows everything past, present, and future. He knows everything actual and potential. Some philosophers will say it this way. He knows both factuals and counterfactuals. He knows what will be, and he knows what would have been had something different been done. So there's no realm, here's a good way of saying it that I understand, there's no, realm, there's no realm of possibility even that God is not fully aware of all that would happen and all the implications and all the events that would transpire. He knows everything that is or could be or ever could be. Number six, God is omnibenevolent or loving. In other words, God is the most loving. He is an all-loving, perfectly loving uh, being. Number seven, God is omni-wise. That is, God has absolute wisdom. Yes, He's all-knowing, but God is also all-wise in terms of His ability to deal with His creation as well. He always does the wise thing, the right thing, the good thing because of His wisdom. And then finally, but again, I think it's an important distinction, God is fatherly toward all, but He's only Father to those become his children by adoption through faith in Jesus Christ. And, you know, I just noticed something as I was looking at this. In a sense, to call God omniscient and omniwise is almost to say the same thing. And what I actually think got left out there, and so I would encourage you maybe to add number nine, God is also omnipresent. Omnipresent, just O M N I P R E. P-R-E-S-E-N-T. In other words, he is all-powerful, he is all-knowing, and he is everywhere present. In other words, it brings great comfort in my heart to know that my uh, children that are serving the Lord in Central Asia, he's there with them. In fact, he was there before they ever got there. And he'll be there when they leave. He's with my children that are serving the Lord uh, in uh, North Africa and the Middle East. All these mission trips we talked about a moment ago. God is already there in advance waiting and preparing. So when our folks get there, they won't be there by themselves. Because there's no place in all of creation that the presence of our great God is not there. And so, again, you can't go anywhere where he's not. You can't experience any problem he can't handle. There's nothing that will ever occur in your life that he doesn't understand better than you and also have a better response than you would have. He is that kind of wonderful God. And amazingly, you can know him as your father. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, and we don't take for granted tonight that we can call you that. We love you because you first loved us. Indeed, you are a perfect, loving father. And how do we know that? because you took your most precious gift your son the Lord Jesus and you sent him into this world and you allowed him to die in our place on the cross that we might experience the full forgiveness of sin and that we might too know you as father thank you again for listening to this chapel message from Southeastern Baptist Theological Seminary if you're thinking about theological education on the undergraduate or graduate level including doctoral studies